Welcome back to Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa. In this show, we take a burning question from the financial services space across the globe and really put it under the microscope with explainers, expert panels, and in-depth interviews, all to bring the global community into focus. Today, I am joined again by my Fintech Insider Focus co-host, Lauren Ware, who is the Senior Director for Digital and Fintech Partnerships, Visa Asia Pacific. How's it going, Lauren? I'm very well, thank you, David. Thanks for having me along. No worries at all. Uh, In this second part of our focus on the question, how is embedded finance disrupting access to finance in APAC, is going to be a really interesting conversation, I I think, to, to really continue to to unpack that. I mean, if you haven't heard part one of this conversation, go find it wherever it was that you found this podcast and listen to our panel discussion with amazing guests from Wise and Big Pay. We spoke about the use cases for embedded finance in the region, really the impact that that has across all different elements of financial services, and really how you bring your customers into the product and vice versa to the sake of you know really embedding things where they they're, they're necessary but but Lauren I guess to recap where does visa really fit in the picture of embedded finance thanks David I mean I, th- I think before I dive into answering the question it's, it's good to really define what we mean when we talk about embedded finance and and for us we see it as the delivery of financial services on everyday digital platforms that are non-financial at the right moments in the customer's journey. Um, And there are, of course, significant untapped opportunities in this space. I mean, just for small businesses and consumers alone, Asia Pacific represents more than $240 billion of addressable revenue, which is is pretty incredible. Um, But back to your question, there's sort of three key areas where I see Visa fitting into the embedded finance relationship. Um, And the first of those is that Visa's unique network of network strategy positions us really at the very heart of what can be achieved through embedded finance. Um, Our strategic partnerships span across all participants um, in the embedded finance ecosystem, including banks, non-FIs, fintechs, merchants, payfacts, and of course, other solutions providers. Um, And our role is really to support how they unlock that growth potential in the digital economy. Um, A really great example of how this can come together and come to life is is a personal one for me, which I I did share on the the last episode. But, you know, I'm I'm going to Bali next month. I'm I'm leaving my husband and toddler at home um, and going to meet some, some girlfriends for for a holiday. And I booked that trip via the AirAsia app. And in that app, um, not only did I book my flights, but in that moment, I was also offered travel insurance, accommodation options, on-the-ground transport, and also big pay, which enables me to unlock some of those exclusive offers with AirAsia. So in that single consumer experience, I was able to book pay and also gain access to, to loyalty benefits. That's a an amazing integrated experience in that sense, isn't it? And actually all of the things that are provided there to your to your definition on that are value added services, aren't they? They're the things that make your experience of doing that you know, safer or more secure or, or a little bit simpler. Um, definitely makes me jealous, although I'll be honest with you, sat in, uh, sat in the UK right now, it's raining. So like uh, if you're off to sunny climates, that uh, feels a bit unfair. But uh, Well, it's, it's perpetual summer in Singapore as it is, so always warm here. I was just going to talk about data as well. So, so the second thing I want to talk about is how the success of embedded finance really relies heavily on the participants that I mentioned before in the value chain being able to leverage new sources of data to enable that personalization of solutions. So think about 
back to my example, the personalization was really offering me travel insurance at that point where I needed it. So it's providing the right solution at that point of context. And Visa's data-driven capabilities facilitate that value exchange and collaboration in finance. And ultimately, we're a brand that is synonymous with trust. Um, And we continue to work with industry leaders uh, to enhance data accountability and, of course, customer trust. And the third area I wanted to talk about is is payments expertise. And of course, Visa has over 60 years of, of expertise and experience in this field. But as we talked about on the last episode, Asia Pacific as a region represents this really diverse spectrum of developing, emerging and developed markets. Um, and Visa can leverage our expertise in payments to help to uplift SMBs and consumers wherever they are in that spectrum and bring them into the digital economy. And we can help our clients to determine the best pathway to go to market in a consultative way. To touch on that point, as you say, and we, we talked a little bit about this in the last episode, but you know the, the differences across the countries within the region that is APAC is really, really significant. But, but actually being an organization that has the the capability to cover all of them, you know, this isn't just about moving money within one, it's about moving money across them as well. And, and you know, embedded capability that works across a region, the network of networks in that sense is uh, is really, really important. So, I mean, it really is a fascinating space. And I think APAC is a an amazing um, sort of Petri dish for the rest of the world to look at with regards to how successful embedded finance really has been. But I mean, do you, do you sort of see any, is there any key sort of piece do you think that's created such fruitful soil for, for this change happening? Or do you think it's a sort of a collection of different forces? Um, I mean, I really think it is a collection of different forces, but but to kind of draw out a few examples, you know, when we're talking about that spectrum of, of countries within the Asia-Pacific region, um, there's a lot we're seeing from an embedded finance standpoint about um, financial inclusion. So that's one area. But the other is, um, you know, I, I moved to Singapore from Australia 12 months ago. And what I've observed is this really is sort of land of the super apps. And, and you know, I think about how these super apps are winning the hearts, minds and wallets of, of consumers. And it's really that um, frictionless payments through everyday apps that you're using on a regular basis. Well, it's fantastic. Um, and what we're going to be doing in this second episode is going to we're going to be sitting down with a, a really great guest from the embedded finance space to really put some of these topics of our previous discussion under the microscope with their opinion as well. And um, you'll hear that after a quick short message from our friends at Visa. Don't go anywhere. Visa's fintech fast track program is streamlining the onboarding process for fintechs, enabling them to gain access to Visa's powerful capabilities and network. Visa and their enablement partners help fintechs launch and scale cards, virtual credentials, and disbursement programs. To learn more, visit partner.visa.com. Looking to take your customer journeys to the next level and benchmark your products against the best in financial services? Well, look no further than 11FS Pulse. Home to over 5,700 user journeys covering everything from onboarding to crypto. It features analysis of global brands like Nubank, Revolut, and Robinhood. It's already tried and trusted by big names like Monzo, whose co-founder Jonas said their research phase took just a tenth of the time it normally would, thanks to 11FS Pulse. Join Monzo and hundreds of other brands taking their UX game to the next level by booking a demo today at 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. That's 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. 
Welcome back to FinTech Insider Focus. I'm David Barton Grimley, Director of FinTech Strategy at 11FS, and it's great to be joined by an amazing guest to dive further into the question, how is embedded finance disrupting access to finance in APAC? I'm delighted to be joined by Vritika Modi, Head of GoPay Global Partnerships and Business Development. Vritika, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, David. Great to be here and look forward to our conversation. It's great to have you. For our international audience, can you tell us the elevator pitch on what GoPay is and where it sits within the GoCheck and GoTo group and your role within it? Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully if some of your users are in Indonesia, Singapore, or Vietnam, they've used at least one of our services. But just let me take a step back. So GoTo, which is the kind of parent and holding company, is Indonesia's largest technology ecosystem. And it encompasses a number of different services, which we're happy to talk about today. So one is on-demand services or ride-hailing. So that is Gojek itself. Um, and we have it in Singapore, Indonesia, and Vietnam. The second is Tokopedia, which is the leading e-commerce platform in Indonesia. And the last silo, which is where I sit, is GoToFinancial, which is the payment services and fintech arm of the ecosystem. So as I mentioned, our home market is Indonesia, and especially for financial services and fintech, that is where we are intent on continuously penetrating and, and really hitting every type of consumer group. So I sit within GoToFinancial, which has a lot of different products, one of which is what you brought up, GoPay. So GoPay is the leading e-wallet in Indonesia. And e-wallet for us is, again, stored value, but also multiple different sources of funds. We also have a suite of different merchant services, and namely is Midtrans, which is a payment gateway. We've recently launched consumer lending and merchant lending and are accelerating that. And really the goal for GoToFinancial is to journey with the consumer from end to end. So we are super interested in making sure we can launch investments, insurance, you know, anything that would really make the consumer's life more convenient, more affordable, and give them access to financial inclusion. So I personally lead a team that looks at global partnerships under GTF. And that basically means that we support any and all global partners, anyone who's not domiciled in Indonesia. And that, that's a very long list, uh, but we have a couple of focuses. One is, you know, we're very intent on supporting global partners, the likes of Google, Netflix, who are interested in entering or have entered Indonesia, want to attract the Indonesian consumer, and want to make sure that they are enabling payment services, either that being GoPay as a payment acceptance mode, or Midtrans, our payment gateway itself. The second is, you know, a slate of strategic partners, the likes of Visa, who really are supporting us add more products and services to the Indonesian consumer, right? So again, that's either on the convenience leg or the affordability leg. And then last is, you know, as you know, APAC is flourishing with, with a whole layer of new fintechs and financial companies that are coming out. How can we partner with them? At the end of the day, payments really is a partnership business. So how can we do that to just add value to our users? All right. Thanks for that foundation. Let's let's unpack in a little bit more detail. I'd love to talk a little bit about the journey that GoToGroup has taken to get to GoPay. I mean, you guys have built this incredible, you know, we can call it maybe a super app platform with ambitions to expand all across APEC. As you said, it's a very, very exciting space, particularly in in payments. How how did the business go from 
you know, ride hailing into financial services, into payments. What did that look like? Yeah, absolutely. And and maybe for your international audiences, it would be helpful to just quickly talk about the origin story of Gojek, right? Uh, because if you haven't been to this part of the world or visited Indonesia, you don't really understand what a pain point we were trying to solve. There was a quip, you know, around the fact that folks in Jakarta or Jakartans used to spend, you know, 10 years of their life in traffic. And so Gojek actually was created. It's very similar to Uber as a platform where we would give access to our consumers on an app to hail what we call it an Ojek, which is a motorcycle driver. And that was kind of our primary offering. And, and I would say the starting point coming to kind of embedded finance and, and those types of solutions, GoPay was actually just an, e, you know, it was a, at that point, not even an e-wallet. It was an e-money provider that was a digital wallet or a form of stored, you know, value of cash that was added on and primarily to encourage users to use our Gojek services and make it more convenient. In a place like Indonesia, ATMs, especially as you get to second and third tier cities, are, are very far apart. It's difficult to continuously kind of withdraw cash to pay for these services. And so GoPay's kind of origin story was as a payment method specifically for transport. And we really created a beautiful ecosystem there itself because you could use the driver in your Gojek to help you top up money for your wallet. And again, that that whole cycle was just how do we make life more convenient and flexible for our users? To your question, you know, soon after that, we grew. We kind of grew in, you know, adding Tokopedia after the merger as an e-commerce company. And finally, after that, deciding that GoPay was maybe one service we wanted to give out. But we really, as I mentioned earlier, wanted to, you know, be with the customer across their entire financial services journey. So one of the things that we did as we kind of expanded from GoPay to GoToFinancial is we took a look at our user base and we realized that we have a lot of captive users and it's not only the consumers, it was the drivers and it was the merchants. We also have a food delivery product. And the initial you know, thought process was how can we really upsell financial services to this captive audience? The second thing I think was just kind of organically what happens in a lot of these emerging markets is that your consumer is often someone who hasn't accessed a lot of financial products. And so they start with payments as a hook, but then they naturally want what a lot of their affluent peers are having, which is lending, savings, insurance, and all of the likes. And so, you know, a lot of our product roadmap and our business roadmap has really been driven by, by what the consumer wants. That's super interesting. And, and as, as someone who has been stuck in Jakarta traffic, I completely relate to just how important it is to change the way people people travel and move. And then like, it's, it's totally clear then how that scales into financial services and the, and the broader economy. You mentioned a, a few very interesting use cases for embedded finance, like savings and lending, for example, being, being on your roadmap. I'm, I'm curious to expand a little bit about how critical embedded finance beyond payments is almost to your to your business model and in some senses and and what would a typical customer look like maybe also on the business side is it thinking about retail customers taking out loans and savings accounts what what does a business customer or a b2b environment look like in an embedded finance context for you yeah absolutely and you know i think you've hit the nail on the head because you know embedded finance again is is 
is is fascinating but at the end of the day it's a process so it's kind of a, a methodology of how we we can serve the customer's needs but what we've done is really drive our products based on the customer cohort and what their pain points are and so to your a couple of your questions i think number one like who is our consumer you're absolutely right there is a consumer that we have attracted through the rest of our ecosystem. So there is a Gojek and Tokopedia consumer who we are able to embed services for from a financial services point of view. And, and I'll just rattle off a few examples, right? An example of what we're doing there is we've partnered with a digital bank called Bank Jago, and we are enabling Gojek ride hailing users and Tokopedia e-commerce users to actually directly open a bank account. So that means without going into uh, you know a physical branch, you get to use these two platforms, open a bank account. And you also get to kind of leverage other parts of the company's infrastructure around KYC, so you're not necessarily kind of wasting or spending more time. So you know one customer cohort to answer your question is really the consumers that we get through these ecosystems. Now, what was interesting is that we recently recognized that those are slightly affluent customers. They are ones that have kind of purchasing power to do convenience products, such as ride hailing and, and e-commerce. And what we had left out or what we were not necessarily servicing is kind of mass consumers. And what we have done for them, and I'm happy to deep dive into it because it's very recent, is we've actually launched a, a standalone GoPay app for kind of a different mass segment. So that's kind of on the consumer side. On the on the B2B side, you know, I think we're just starting off in our, I would say in our embedded finance journey. We have a number of different services for the merchants already, including Midtrans, what I spoke about, as well as certain settlement financing products. And you know, we're in that journey of kind of making it embedded in the products and services that they use on a daily basis. It's almost like you're launching a, a full-service financial um, services institution embedded at the point of a customer's need. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned a huge portion of, I guess, the Indonesian population, which is either, you know, less banked or unbanked. Yeah. So I guess you're staring at the opportunity for growth. I thought it was very interesting what you said, how a lot of these, you know, mass market services actually trend to the slightly more affluent side with people who can actually afford to, you know, dine out or take a taxi or, you know, get takeaways. But actually, in some senses, the bigger picture lies with an even, an even larger percentage of the population who lack access to to financial services. I'm curious. I mean, that, that's a, a big thing in Indonesia. Indonesia is a massive country, big, big growth potential pretty much everywhere you look. How, how does that look for you across APAC in general? You mentioned Vietnam. You know, you're, you're based out of Singapore. What, what does the rest of APAC look like for that? Is it a similar kind of trend or are there any kind of specific variances? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and one of the things that we have, and I've been at the company now for about four and a half years and seen it kind of go through very different pivots on how we look at international expansion. And one of the very intentional decisions that we took is that for financial services for the short term, we were going to focus on Indonesia. And I'll, I'll share a few reasons why. I think one is that we, again, felt like we had, you know, if you look at your population pyramid, we had really penetrated the top of that pyramid, but we hadn't necessarily gone further down. And we felt that we had a very strong advantage in being hyper-local, 
to be able to give out those products and services. And and you were mentioning absolutely correctly, you know, financial inclusion is a big goal for us. There's almost 97 million folks in Indonesia that are still unbanked or underbanked who don't have access to these services. I mean, at some point when we did a survey a few years ago, GoPay was, I think the users of GoPay, almost one fourth of them had, you know, interacted with financial inclusion for the first time through our products. And so there's this huge number of people who are who are using it through us for the first time. I think APAC, again, to directly answer your question, it's, you know, it's definitely not a single broad paint stroke, right? I think every single market is so unique and so different that embedded finance, I think, looks very, very different in each of these markets. For us in Indonesia, accessibility and awareness of financial services was what we were solving for through embedded finance. I don't necessarily think that is the the case in markets like Singapore, where you actually might be solving just for convenience. There's, you know, kind of no explanation needed, for example. And so I think for that reason, too, we've been kind of very careful that even if we have the product stacked and the services and the experience, we don't want to kind of jump into new markets just for the sake of it. Yeah, and I think it makes a lot of sense. So just looking at some stats here, you mentioned a, a huge population being unbanked. I think something like 66% of um, Indonesia's population uh, is unbanked, which which basically means that they don't have a bank account. They don't have a current account. It is APAC's largest and most valuable untapped e-money e market. So, you know, for you guys with your presence, I think it makes a, a hell of a lot of sense. And, and I suppose another um, part of that is the regulatory question. You know, and another thing about the diversity across APAC is, you know, you've got lots of different regulators. They will have lots of different approaches towards the kind of things that you'll be allowed to do and allowed not to do. What's what's the Indonesian angle on that? What How permissive are you seeing the regulator to letting you do, you know, embedded finance, partnering with other banks and, and launching different types of financial products? Yeah, absolutely. I think the Indonesian regulator, to be honest, is, is a very fair one. And... and one of the things that has worked for us is I think their principles and our principles are quite aligned, right? So again, one, you know, not to harp on it, but financial inclusion and getting users access to reliable and safe financial products seems to be a goal that the Indonesian government has as well as us. So there is a lot of kind of supportive regulation. The second, again, is, you know, movement away from cash and a movement to digital payments Again, the Indonesian you know, government has been very supportive. Uh, you know, not a very recent, but a very important initiative that they've taken is basically something called CRIS or QRIS, which is the ability to kind of create a standardized QR code, which all merchants will have. It's, it's kind of priced in a favorable way to merchants and then users are incentivized to use that. So I think from a you know, support point of view, you have a regulator that is definitely very open. I think the second thing the regulator has done, which is truly part of their role, is create guardrails. Because I think in, in embedded finance, at the end of the day, you know, there's a large element of trust and security, right? You are pretty much embedding a financial product on a surface that is not considered a financial institution, right, by definition. So we tend to have an advantage in that way because the trust for GoPay is so high. But the regulator has really come in to kind of create the guardrails for 
where and when you can have kind of embedded finance exist, right? At what point is an e-commerce provider also responsible enough to have financial flows going through it to, to give some, I mean, definitely not advice, but to give some sort of indication that that alone would be a good idea for an end consumer. So I think those guardrails are only helpful to players like us that that you know really actively are are working to create a very safe and reliable product for the end user. I think re- regulation is definitely one of those things that will either enable or almost kill the opportunity in in some senses. And Absolutely. if you if you look at the the U.S. and in Europe and and the hype, shall we say, about embedded finance scaling across the world, there was definitely over the last few years this sense that embedded finance would be this sweeping tide of change throughout the banking industry. Right, all of a sudden, everybody would be embedded. You know, products, financial products, would be you know fully available on e-commerce websites, and we would be getting loans based on our digital behavior all over. Over the shop and what has ended up by happening is the the rubber hitting the road of access to customer data the ability for you to actually do something meaningful with that and provide a loan and partnering with banks and in some senses, it can be very, very expensive. It it can it can open you up to a lot of regulatory risk in 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 some cases. So I think, from from a global perspective, embedded finance has definitely taken a bit of a hit in some senses if people have stepped back and gone, well, actually, gosh, how how on earth are we going to do this? And how on earth are we going to scale? And I, I really hear it's always people looking to APAC and companies such as yourselves for where the the big next growth is is going to be. And just just to the 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 point quickly on on regulation before we before we move on, are, are there any Barriers for all the good that you see um, the Indonesian regulator um, moving forward. What, what what would you say are the the bigger barriers for you in doing some of the things that you want to do? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, and and I think we take a very consumer focused lens on this, right? So, you know, as naturally, our consumers want different products, and they often want it immediately. There's a sense that you know, things like the licensing process sometimes can be seen as a barrier because, you know, your speed desire for speed to market might not always match the same desire that the government has to get it to as many players as possible. But to me, I think there are benefits to that. I think there's a thoughtfulness to that 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 is the reason for all of this. And and to be honest, I, I would say that in our history that has never necessarily come up as a as a blockage, right? If anything, if it's a barrier, because it forces us to think about at what point should we expand lending services? You know, what threshold should there be? What are the guardrails in terms of cost of funds and where they can come from? And and I do believe it hasn't necessarily been detrimental to growth in any way. Yeah, that's good to know. Let's talk about what's next. Yeah, absolutely. And what's next, not just for for you in in GoTo and and GoTo Financial, but also maybe let's start with e-commerce and shall we say digital commerce in general. Yeah, absolutely. So the foundation point being you've got a ride-hailing platform that gives you permission to do all sorts of other things, which then gives you permission to provide financial services and payments and wallets, et cetera. Are you seeing any any behavioral changes in how consumers or, or businesses are adopting digital going into the future? Is it, a, is it a question of the trend line is increasing, ride hailing is increasing, people are buying more things online or is, or is something different happening? Yeah. And, you know, this goes back to the point, actually, I think I, I heard this on one of your earlier podcasts you were saying, right? So 
it's this the point you made about the US also and, and other markets, there's this flurry on how to do embedded finance and, and people are wanting to embed everything everywhere, right? And and I think you mentioned the permutations and combinations are kind of endless. And we've done, you know, two things I would say. I think one, we've actually taken a call that we're not gonna embed everything everywhere. That there are certain use cases that are very useful for Gojek and Tokopedia customers because they're affluent. And there are other use cases that we're gonna kind of keep separate because they serve the mass market. And, and what I wanted to share is that we've recently launched GoPay, which is a completely standalone financial services app. And we've created it in a way which is very specific to the mass market. It's a light app, it's 25 megabytes, We've only put certain use cases on there, whether that is transfers that are free. So 100 free transfers, top-ups are very useful in Indonesia, and it's a very big hook. And, and we'll kind of continue putting out a bunch of these services just for this cohort. What we then are doing is pulling out what is useful only and putting it on Gojek and Tokopedia. So something like free transfers is not really a big use case for the affluent. But on the other hand, something like cash loans is something that we've embedded on Gojek as well as Tokopedia e-commerce. And this also exists on the GoPay app. So I think one thing that we really recalibrated as we looked at our journey on embedded finance is that you wanna serve a large addressable market and you wanna leverage the ecosystem play, but you don't necessarily wanna kind of throw spaghetti at the wall. You wanna be very intentional about what you're embedding on all of these platforms. And I think that has been beneficial to us because that means that Gojek consumers on ride hailing are able to engage with the app and basically see services that are most useful to them. And I, and I, we slowly do see an uptick in that, right? I mean, I think certain products that I mentioned earlier, such as opening your bank account, that is, you know, it's, it's moving and it's accelerating. And a lot of users are, are excited to use that. And then they see the ability to engage with that. Things like cash loans, we've just recently launched. And as we build up kind of marketing and awareness around that, the Gojek consumer itself, the Gojek driver also, will start seeing kind of use cases where they can use some of these lending products. Amazing. So it sounds like GoPay is your new standalone platform that sits almost on the side to Gojek that you can use to cross-pollinate. Uh, but the, the, the kind of customer profile is, is slightly different in some senses, you mentioned twenty-five megabytes as being a um, a size and and of the of the app, and this is something that I think we know from some of the earlier days of embedded finance and also of ride hailing around how important it is to have a lightweight um, app that people can actually use. And are you still seeing? I mean, I guess you must be that that people are using maybe smartphones that have a much um, cheaper cheaper cost, or they've got like a slower processing system. Is that still a critical? Um, enabler for scale. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at an emerging market like Indonesia, you know, you of course, and, and you mentioned you visit Jakarta, like that is a group of people that might be more open to having, you know, more foreign phones using larger sizes. But the, the majority of the people that we are going to be serving over the next couple of years, you know, don't have that type of flexibility. And, you know, 25 megabytes, just for reference, is almost one third or one quarter the size of kind of equivalent financial apps or, or other apps that existed 
in Indonesia. So that's a game changer because you're now encouraging accessibility, which I think is the biggest thing that you have to solve for when you're serving an unbanked or an underserved population. And this type of situation that the Indonesian customer, let's say, faces themselves in with, you know, say, high-tech feature phones almost, right? It's like that feature phone, smartphone barrier. Hints at a broader point around why embedded finance almost has a right to exist um, in in APAC. And, And very often the kind of questions that we get all the time are, you know, why is it that, that APAC is this embedded finance, you know, center? And, and, and also, why can't it really scale to Europe and the U.S. and in the way that it has um, in APAC and in the way that it is beginning in, in places like Africa and across LATAM? Um, what, what is it about Indonesia and Southeast Asia that makes embedded finance so important? And it's a great question. And I've spent a lot of my career, you know, in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and India, and Indonesia. And, and I almost think that, you know, I, I I do enjoy the buzz and kind of the interest around embedded finance right now because it's so pertinent. But for a lot of our consumers, this concept of embedded finance is actually not very new, right? I mean, when you go back to how they used to engage with payments and and paying, I mean, embedded finance at its core is really similar to, you know, a user going to in India, we call it a Kirana store, which is a mom and pop shop. In Indonesia, we call it a warung. And you would go to your grocer or your your merchant and you basically would say, look, I don't have money to pay for that fish today. Can you draw me up a line of credit really quickly? And, and that's them kind of putting your name down on a piece of paper, putting a number next to it, probably going to have dinner with the merchant because he's your uncle's friend at some point. But this concept that you know, you can avail of financial services or financial products at your point of need, right? So right now that's checkout on Tokopedia, but back then it was at the cashier at the merchant store and you could avail of lending, you could avail of, you know, the ability to start savings. So it's not that foreign, ironically, to a lot of the users we serve. And as a lot of these communities and emerging markets leapfrog, they're able to really make the connection that, that's what Gojek is allowing me to do through GoPay, or that's what you know I can actually do on Tokopedia. So there's almost a, a narrative that works for them. I think second, and this is to your point on kind of versus Europe and the US, I mean, you know, I do believe that that life in a lot of ways is a little bereft of convenience. If you looked at the way that a lot of these Indonesian users have to go about their daily tasks, right? So something as kind of simple as as bill payments or transfers. I mean, they have to do that 10 to 12 times in a month, but they're having to originally do it, you know, when someone comes to their door, so they have to be there physically. Or for something like transfers, which is a P2P transfer, you have to go a certain miles to a kiosk. And I think that whole journey is so much more painful sometimes in some of these emerging markets that there's such a hunger and appetite for when something convenient comes up. And I think that is the the point around why a lot of these users have had significant uptake on in, on embedded finance. And the truth is, I think that companies like us can you know, leverage the fact that there's already behavior and there's a really significant pain point, but then how do you turn that intent into action, right? I mean, there was a survey we did some time ago, which basically said that 
you know, the interest in purchasing, you know, financial products digitally, it's about 60 to 80%. But eventually those who do purchase it, it, it goes down to almost like 15 to 30%. So our job is then, you know, through tech, through, through UX, UI to kind of close that gap as much as we can. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And in many ways, the convenience problem, shall we say, has been solved. It's been solved in different ways in the West, but that means that we don't necessarily need embedded finance models, or it's not so pressing as it is in other markets that have these this, that have these huge gaps. This is also something we, we hear. I mean, we've done a lot of podcasts recently about the fintech scene in sub-Saharan Africa, and the thing we hear time and time again is, I suppose what I've heard other people refer to is the agent model. It's the same thing that you were talking about. It's the warung, it's the corner shop, it's the what have you, who I trust. It's a trust member of my community that I go to for all sorts of services. And I just find it absolutely fascinating that as this leapfrogging is happening, as you're saying, that model, that structure of MSMEs and SMEs, the way that the informal economy um, has been is, is, is continuing, right? It's not necessarily changing. It's not like all of a sudden the way that people engage with agents or the way that people buy products is changing. It's not at all. It is digitizing and the culture is moving ahead as well, which I, which I find so so fascinating. Let's let's come back to the big question of today's show and just just wrap it up a a, a little bit. Talking about the the future and the disruption of access to finance in in APAC. Maybe maybe the point there is more about incumbent financial institutions, which you know one of the reasons I suppose why we're even having this this conversation is that the incumbent banking sector has not provided services um, to people um, who who are unbanked. You know, to to what extent do you see embedded finance almost disrupting incumbents or even incumbents themselves becoming more embedded and partnering with um, businesses such as yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. I you know I. I'm a bit of an optimist in this, I think, for a couple of reasons. I think, you know, especially banks in Indonesia, extremely digitally savvy and, and are doing a fantastic job, you know, acquiring customers as well. And I don't think that it's going to be kind of a win-lose situation. I think the market is so big enough, you know, the TAM is just, you know, you can have the banks serve a particular cohort and you can have digital players serve another cohort. And you still wouldn't, I believe, really get to the end state or the happy flow that you want to where everyone is is financially free and 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 um, has access. So I think one is that, you know, especially in places like Indonesia, the market is big enough for multiple folks to exist. I think the second is that, you know, and we've taken this approach, right? Like we've clearly taken a very partnerships approach in this, which is that one of our earliest partners was a digital bank, Bank Jago, and they saw what were their strengths, you know, ability to to have, you know, uh, funding, the ability to have a full suite of services that they can upsell, but they, they weren't necessarily able to, to solve for kind of the accessibility problem, right? And get to the consumer where they wanted. And so they partnered with us, you know, for us to do that leg. So I do see a lot of these kind of partnerships coming out where at the end of the day, the bank is also winning because you're partnering with us almost as a distributor and then your cost to serve as a bank has gone down. And I think that there is more scope for kind of partnerships and innovation like that that can drive us over the next couple of years that makes it 
less of a winner-take-all market and definitely not a win-lose market. And, and I do feel we've started to see this already happen in APAC, and I can see it continuing. You're right. It's all about partnerships for growth, right? A bank doesn't necessarily want to go into the ride-sharing or ride-hailing business, right? And at the same time, you guys are not necessarily going to want to take all of the risk in in lending. So it just makes a hell of a lot of sense. And and you're right. I think this is where fintech needs to go more and more into the future is, is forging these partnerships with big financial institutions that can provide the capital to loan and, and save and have the licensing, et cetera. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That wraps up this edition of FinTech Insider Focus in association with Visa. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and GoPay? Thanks so much, David. Really enjoyed the conversation. So I'm based in Singapore, but I travel frequently to Jakarta. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find our company at gotocompany.com. And if you are traveling to Indonesia, please download the GoPay app and you'll get to play around with a lot of the features that we spoke about today. Awesome. And you can find me on LinkedIn at David BG. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and it helps others find the show. Be sure to check out the next batch of FinTech Insider Focus episodes in a new geography dropping in two weeks' time. Thanks very much and goodbye. <laughs>